This week on the show, we're showing you how to leverage OpenZFS to build your own storage appliance, install OpenBSD as a VM, set up your own CalDAV and CardDAV servers on OpenBSD, display basic computer information using the DMI table decoder, a GPART cheat sheet, Rob Pike on the origin of Unix.file names, and more in this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 509, .file naming, recorded on the 10th of May, 2023. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow, find online backup for truly paranoid people. And if you want to support this show in one way or the other, check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash bsdnow. And we thank you in advance for that. Hi, I'm your host, Benedict Reuschling. And I'm Alan Jude. Welcome, a fresh episode prepared for you right out of the podcast baking oven, if you want to call it that. Uh, starting off with headlines about OpenZFS, leveraging OpenZFS to build your own storage appliance by Clara Systems. And of course, people have been uh, doing this for a while, but uh, it has some nuances we should be aware of. Uh, so it starts off, uh, well, OpenZFS is overall not just a suitable solution as a software-defined storage fabric, but can be leveraged as your key component for either a storage appliance or even a storage product on its own. There are several companies that have built products based on OpenZFS, such as TrueNAS, OpenMediaVault, Proxmox, OSNexus, which uh, provide a range of storage solutions for home, business, and enterprise users. These products use OpenZFS as the core storage technology and provide a user-friendly interface, management tools, and add-ons that make it easier to manage and scale storage systems. So, but you should be aware of any limitations and considerations. If you are planning to build a product with OpenZFS, there are several factors to consider, such as the target market, product features, hardware, and software components, and support and, maintain and maintenance requirements. Building a product based on OpenZFS requires technical expertise in storage management, software development, and hardware integration, so it may not be suitable for all businesses or startups. So that is uh, important to know. Um, this, the difference between using OpenZFS to simply store and manage data and using it to build your own storage appliance is in the level of control and customization that you have over your storage system. So when you just use OpenZFS to simply store and manage data, you're typically using it, it as an existing operating system or hardware platform, such as Linux or FreeBSD server. And you're primarily using the storage features of OpenZFS, such as creating and managing data sets, snapshots, and backups. In this scenario, you're not necessarily building a dedicated storage appliance, but rather using OpenZFS as a tool to manage your data on an existing platform. When using a general purpose system for storage, you don't have to consider as many factors related to hardware integration and supportability. On the other hand, when you use OpenZFS to build your own storage appliance, you have greater control over the hardware and software components of your storage system. You can choose the hardware components, such as the server, storage controllers, and disks, and you can install a dedicated operating system, such as TrueNAS or OpenMediaVault, that is optimized for storage management and provides a user-friendly interface for managing your storage. Controlling hardware the appliance will use allows for deeper integration, letting the UI visualize the hardware for the users and blinking the current fault LEDs for a failed drive. You can also customize the software configuration of OpenZFS to meet your specific needs, such as setting up advanced features like deduplication or encryption and specific tuning work for your target workloads. 
So making also ZFS, uh, OpenZFS licensing work for you. Some uh, bullet points here for you is the open source licensing. There are no royalties or fees. Flexibility and rent customization and large community of developers and users. These are all points elaborated more in the article. Uh, key features and capabilities to leverage ZFS and open well, key features and capabilities to leverage in open ZFS, of course, is the data protection, scalability, the compression and deduplication features, snapshots and cloning opens a lot of possibilities, data sharing uh, over various uh, network protocols, and performance tuning is also a big uh, consideration there. They also list a couple of caveats when considering OpenZFS for OpenZFS storage appliance. And uh, they conclude in the article uh, with the following, building a storage appliance with OpenZFS can be a viable option for startups that require a flexible and reliable open source solution. OpenZFS provides advanced features such as snapshotting, replication, and compression, which can help you optimize your storage usage and reduce costs. Additionally, OpenZFS has a permissive open source license, which allows for commercial use and customization. However, building a storage appliance with OpenZFS also comes with some challenges and caveats. These include the technical expertise required to build and manage a storage appliance using OpenZFS, compatibility and interoperability issues, limited vendor support and documentation, and legal and licensing concerns. In addition, Building a storage appliance with OpenZFS requires a significant investment of time, resources, and expertise. So before deciding to build a storage appliance with OpenZFS, it's important to carefully consider your storage requirements, target market, and resources. You may wish to consult with the OpenZFS experts at Clara, highly recommended here, to determine which option best meets your specific needs and requirements. Overall, building a storage appliance with OpenZFS can be a great option for startups that require a flexible and reliable storage solution but it requires careful consideration and investment to ensure success. Next up, we have installing OpenBSD as a VM. So OpenBSD is an attempt to be the most secure operating system on the market. Although I've learned uh, the author leans more towards FreeBSD in the past, starting today, I want to venture into something new and OpenBSD is where that takes me. Uh, so far, I've only known OpenBSD for the products such as firewalls that are based on it, but I've never actually installed and used it myself. So I want to change that. And so today we're creating a new VM uh, using OpenBox or uh, VirtualBox with OpenBSD 7.3. So to start, we're going to create a new VM uh, with OpenBSD in VirtualBox. Uh, we need to have VirtualBox or similar to it already installed uh, and download the OpenBSD ISO for the correct platform. So they have install 7.3.iso for the AMD64 architecture. Uh, when I start VirtualBox and open the new VM, uh, once I type the type of BSD, I can set the version to 64-bit OpenBSD. I can set the amount of RAM, the number of cores, and all the basic stuff and get a VM up and running. So as soon as the installation process starts, you can see the first user input prompt, and you can choose if you want to install, upgrade, auto-install, or drop to a shell. I chose install by pressing the I key and confirmed by pressing enter. Uh, throughout the installation, you will often see values in square brackets. This is the default selection, so if you just press enter, that's what will happen. Uh, next, the corresponding keyboard layout uh, should be selected. I can display the corresponding shortcuts with the options. Uh, and I wanted a German keyboard layout, so they entered DE for Germany and got that going. Then they set the VM host name uh, and they chose one that matched their website here, byte-size.de. Then they configured the network. In the beginning, all the network interfaces are listed. 
as mentioned earlier, EM0 is the default, it's in square brackets. Uh, and so I chose that. Uh, and once I configured it, it did DHCP and uh, IPv6 autoconf and got it all up and running. <laughs> After that, it's time to create a user uh, or create a password for the root user. Uh, the password's not displayed, there are no stars, so it doesn't give away how long the password is either. Uh, just type the password twice, uh, hitting enter after each. And they wanted SSH, so they chose to do that, and they opted out of installing the X Windows. However, I did want to create another user, so I planned to disable SSH access as root later on. So if you want to create a user, type that username now and hit enter. As mentioned above, I want to disable SSH access as root, so I confirmed that that was there as well. And then they set their time zone and then got to partitioning the disk. Uh, so then uh, encryption for the hard drive was asked about and they declined that and just selected their root disk WD0 uh, and created a full MBR partition and a, with a full, or sorry, a full GPT partition table and got that going. And then selected the file sets, which kernels and, and components they wanted to install. They got, you know, the kernel and the base packages and a couple of things, for example, the man pages they wanted, uh, and got all that going and hit enter. And after that, OpenBSD detects that your clock is probably incorrect and asks you to fix it. Although I entered yes, it proceeded with the installation process uh, and got it all sorted out. So in the end, uh, you can close your VM and unmount the ISO. And then once you do, you can start it back up. And now you have an OpenBSD client machine. Nice. good to have the info and we covered this blog a couple times they have some good articles there some of them are in german and not translated yet but google translate is a way to get those as well and so yeah keep blogging uh, and we will be happy to cover future articles like this okay um some other person in the news roundup we cover a lot since well she's writing a good the blog every other day or whenever time permits. Celine is uh, showing us how to set up your own CalDAV and CardDAV server on OpenBSD in this one. So the introduction reads, uh, calendar and contact syncing. It's something I pushed away for too long, but when I've lost data on my phone and my contacts with it, setting up a local CalDAV slash CardDAV server is the first thing I did. Okay. So uh, today I'd like to show you how to set up a server radical to have your own server. Okay, here we go. Radicali, uh, that's the link to the office. I think it's just radical. Radical, as in cowl, as in calendar. Yeah. Oh yeah, oh, of course, yeah. <laughs> okay, radical. Uh, she links to the website radical.org, and basically CalDAV for calendars and to-do lists, and CardDAV for contacts are exchange protocols to sync. Uh, contacts and calendars between devices. Okay, how to set that up? OpenBSD 7.3, the latest version of Radical, is Radical 2, available as a package with all the service files required for a quick and efficient setup. Okay, so in OpenBSD land, it's package underscore add Radical. After installation, you will have to edit the file etc Radical config in order to make a few changes. Uh, isn't that user local etc Radical? But okay, not on OpenBSD. Not? Okay. Oh, oh, fine. Uh, other users, other systems can substitute that. They find that file. The syntax looks like any files with sections between brackets and then key values on separate lines. For my setup, I made a radical server to listen on the IP 
10.42.42.42 and port 5.2.3.2. And it shows to use htpasswd while a file is encrypted in bcrypt to manage the users. Makes sense. This was accomplished uh, with the following piece of configuration. You can find directly on the block, copy and paste and change your needs. After changing uh, savings, um, no, wait, the other way around. After saving the changes this way, you need to generate the file etc add account users to add credentials and passwords in it uh, using htpasswd. And she also shows how to do that. Now everything is ready. You can enable Radical to run at boot and start it now using rcctl to manage the service. rcctl enable Radical and rcctl start Radical. All right, managing calendars and contacts is next. Now you should be able to read Radical in the address it's listening. In her example, the IP address mentioned earlier at the port and use your credentials to log in. Then just click on the link, create new address book or calendar and complete the form. Back on the index, you will see each item managed by Radical and the URL to access it. When you will configure your devices to use CalDev and CardDev, you will need the credentials and the URL. In conclusion, she writes, Radical is very lightweight and super easy to configure. And I finally have a proper calendar synchronization on my computers and smartphone, which turned, to be, uh, turned out to be very practical. Going further, if you want to set up HTTPS for Radical, you can either use a certificate file and configure Radical to use it, or use a reverse HTTP proxy such as Nginx and handle the certificate there. Oh yeah, very good, easy to follow and have your own private server instead of other companies or cloud services potentially stealing them, whatever reason for. Then we have something um, from yet another blog we cover early because I read it or look at a couple of these things uh, because they appear relatively frequently. At sleeplessbeastie.eu is not a beastie blog, but some of these posts carry over quite well. How to display basic computer information using DMI table decoder. Yeah, so the DMI decode tool is one that I'm very familiar with for having used, but I generally use it by, you know, starting it, piping into less and looking for the information I want in the kind of text display. Mm -hmm. um, but they show that you can use DMI decode dash S and then various keywords, and it will print just that information. For example, DMI decode dash S BIOS dash vendor will print out the name of the company that made the BIOS on the system, which in their example is Dell. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you can use the same thing to look at the system manufacturer or the product name. And in this case, it says it's an Optiplex 9020. Um, and you can get the system serial number or the UUID or the SKU and a bunch of other things like that. And having all of that information can be super handy for doing any kind of inventory uh, or just looking up information you need to do support on the system. Yeah, especially automatic inventory. Like if you have a, a whole farm of servers, you don't want to do this manually. You want to grab this with some scripts or some tools like uh, Netbox, for example. Yeah, and so now you do DMI decode dash S, uh, you know, processor dash family will say core i5 and processor dash manufacturer will say Intel. But if you get the full processor dash version, it's, you know, Intel core i5 uh, 4570S at 2.9 gigahertz and so on. Uh, but rather than have to parse that, you can DMI decode just processor-frequency and it returns just a number in megahertz. Mm -hmm. And so this is this comes with pretty much any computer these days or only uh, desktop uh, servers, no embedded? Uh, so DMI decode works on most things that have ACPI. 
it would just be on previously as a package, so you have to install it mm -hmm. first. But okay, but the information is there if you need it. Could mm -hmm. be a nice exercise for students to kind of uh, uh, getting ideas. Okay. Uh. <laughs> yep. And uh, some of this information is also provided via SMBIOS, and so it's in the the KM in FreeBSD, uh, and then they show they have a a DMI thing built into the Linux kernel that provides a slash sys device uh, that has some of the details about the device as well. Mm -hmm. And it works just as well if you have an, a UEFI system. It doesn't matter whether it's BIOS or UEFI. Okay, then that's good to know. And people can happily decode what the information the vendor has uh, stored in there. Then it's time to pick, take out your cheat sheets. No, it's not exam time this time. It's about uh, looking up certain things that you don't want to remember all the time. Uh, there's a GPART cheat sheet here. Wiping drives, partitioning, and formatting is provided uh, on the FreeBSD forums. I found this and I thought, hey, why not? It's yeah. a bit older uh, from 2014, but hey. But all this stuff is the same. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, GPART destroy with a capital F will just delete the entire partition scheme. Uh, so that's all the, the tables and all the items. Uh, normally, you can't destroy the whole MBR or GPT if there's any partitions existing. But if you do the capital F, it's the big hammer and it just wipes it entirely clean. And then you gpart create with your dash s and then a type like gpt or mbr or whatever you want and the disk and it will create that and then it shows how to add various partition types and then format them and do whatever else you want to do with them mm -hmm. yeah. uh, and it also does talk about the fact that uh if you do mbr the device is going to be you know da0s1 whereas if you do gpt it'll be da0p1 uh, and some of the differences that you'll see there and then it gets into, you know, when you do crazy things like doing uh, a BSD slicing on top of a, a MBR partition table and you get, you know, DA0S1C and, and so on. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah, sometimes that can be a bit cumbersome. Well, but that was the, the default for a long mm. time. And so there's that. But GPT is much nicer just in the fact that you're not limited to just four partitions. Oh, yes. That's much more flexible. Yeah. Good to know. Yes. Uh, every time I use a different operating system, I I miss GPART. So it's <laughs> it, definitely a tool to learn because it is extremely powerful and very easy to express what you want. Mm. Also, if you happen to need to do a lot of disks the same way, to say make a ZFS pool, GPART backup device name will print out a, a machine-readable version of the partition table. Ah, uh, yes. And then you can use gpart restore that in from that text file and it'll recreate the partition based on that text file so a great way to back up and restore the partition table but also you can back up disk one and restore to disk two and disk three and disk four and disk five and now you have all of those ones partitioned exactly the same oh good trick yeah so you don't miss anything since you have a copy from one that's working already ah very good okay um then next up we found uh rob pike on the origin of unix dot file names so if you ever wondered why are they called that way this is the explanation it appears um goes like this rob pike one of the unix voodooers or voodooer uh logged on his google plus account about the history of unix file name convention of dot and dot dot so current directory and the directory above and goes like this quote a lesson in shortcuts long ago as the design of unix file system was being worked out the entries dot and dot dot appeared 
to make navigation easier. Not sure, but I believe dot dot went in during the version 2 rewrites when the file system became hierarchical. It had a very different structure early on. When one typed ls, however, these files appeared. So either Ken or Dennis added a simple test to the program. It was in assembler then, but the code in question was equivalent to something like if name uh, element of zero is a dot, then continue. This statement was a little shorter than what it should have been, which is if the name of the uh, yeah, compare it's either a dot or a dot dot, then continue, and otherwise it's something else. But hey, it was easy. Two things resulted. First, a bad precedent was set. A lot of other lazy programmers introduced bugs by making the same simplification. Actual files beginning with periods are often skipped when they should be counted. Second, and much worse, the idea of hidden or dot file was created. As a consequence, more lazy programmers started dropping files into everyone's home directory. I don't have all that much stuff installed on the machine I'm using to type this, but my home directory has about a hundred dot files and I don't even know what most of them are or whether they're still needed. Every file name evaluation that goes through my home directory is slowed down by this accumulated sludge. <laughs> I'm pretty sure the concept of a hidden file was an unintended consequence. It was certainly a mistake. How many bugs and wasted CPU cycles and instances of human frustration, not to mention bad design, have resulted from that one small shortcut about 40 years ago? Keep in mind next time when you want to cut a corner in your code. For those who object that dot .files have a purpose, I don't dispute that, but counter that it's the files that serve the purpose, not the convention for their names. They could just as easily be in $home slash CFG or home uh, slash lib, which is what we did in Plan 9, which had no dot .files. Lessons can be learned. Yeah. I can see why they did it that way, and then why it was wrong, mm -hmm. and why it had all these unintended consequences for 40 plus years. Yeah, you, you couldn't foresee how people misuse this yet again, right? For their own purposes. I mean, useful hidden files may be useful, but it wasn't that Unix folks have thought, okay, we need hidden files that are different from regular files. When No, it was somebody started abusing the fact that a file started with dot would be skipped, and then it just kind of spiraled out of control like that. Yeah. <laughs> And then more concerning to me is just realizing that because of the age of this post, the original post from Rob Pike, that's actually 50 years now. Ooh, okay. Yeah. But still, it's uh, good to know these days. Yeah. 50 years of Unix. Oh, yeah. It's growing. Very good. Time for Beastie Bits. We haven't had them in a while, so better to have them now. Uh, Hacker Stations has a couple new setups for us, so we should look into that one. The first one is Mike McQuaid's Clean Ergonomic Setup in Edinburgh, Scotland. Hopefully the pronunciation isn't yep. too bad. No, that's about right. Okay. Uh, so looking at this, I, I immediately see an, I think that's an Aeron, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, so yeah, uh, I'm Mike McQuaid. Good I'm share. a homebrew project leader and I've maintained the project for 14 years now. I'm also the CTO and co-founder of Raise.dev. I recently left my job as a principal engineer at GitHub, where I worked for 10 calendar years. And I've worked from home for about 14 years, mostly remotely for US-based companies. So my hardware setup, uh, my daily driver is a 16-inch 2021 M1 Max MacBook Pro. Uh, some sort of Apple MacBook has been my primary computer since I left Linux. And there's a link to a story there if you're interested. Uh, it connects with a USB-C cable to a Dell 27-inch 4K monitor. Uh, and that also charges the MacBook and connects all the USB devices. Uh, 
uses an Ethernet dongle. He says, I don't trust Wi-Fi. And an Elgato uh, face cam webcam. And an Elgato Wave 3 microphone. And a Logitech G403 mouse. And the Apple Magic Keyboard using a US layout because the UK one sucks for programming in Ruby. Uh, and then over Bluetooth, they also have a Apple Magic trackpad. Okay. Uh, the desk is a Ferna sit-stand desk with the ability to jump between uh, two ergonomically perfect uh, layouts, uh, sitting and standing. And when I'm sitting, I'm using a Herman Miller Aeron chair, probably the best chair ever made. Alan says while sitting in one. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> Uh, on the desk, there's also a Belkin wireless iPhone and Apple Watch charger, so I can charge my devices. Uh, and uh, they like tracking uh, too much sleep and they don't like tracking too much health and sleep data and so on. And they have an Audio Engine A5 Plus set of speakers and a subwoofer. Uh, they said they don't like wearing headphones all day. Neither do I, mm. but meetings mean I wear headphones a lot of the day anyway. Wow, that's tasking yep. uh, the wider room has two colored light bulbs that allow me to have mood lighting and more customization when doing video calls uh, and they also have a usb hub that they can switch over to a windows gaming pc for relaxing time and say so the favorite item in their workspace is the m1 mac which is absurdly nice hardware and the magic trackpad which makes gestures uh and makes it really fast Uh, their favorite programming languages are Ruby, Bash, and Go. The thing they feel that they're missing is more hardware to software binding, being able to script, like raising and lowering his desk, uh, and would like a way to auto-join video calls so I'm not late. Mm, yeah. <laughs> I did finally sort it out so Slack uh, marks me as being in a meeting when I'm in a meeting so that people can tell. Uh, but yeah. Multiple And then lastly, meetings. they say... Uh, what book would they recommend? And they would say uh, they mostly read fiction nowadays, but the most influential nonfiction work they've read recently is The Design of Everyday Things by Donald Norman. Interesting. Yeah, that's why I like this. They don't show the hardware, not just the hardware or the software, but also a little bit what they are using in software or how they configure certain things. Or We should do some of this ourselves one day, right? Our own setups. Yeah, but to take a picture, I'd have to clean my desk. <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> it's okay, I think. Uh, there's another one we have uh, from Daniel Stenberg. And the home Who you of... might know as the developer of Curl. Oh, yeah, in his home of Stockholm, Sweden. Uh, pictures loading, okay. Hi, my name is Daniel Stenberg. I'm a Swedish software developer, mostly known for being the founder and lead developer of the Curl project, right? I work full-time on open source from my home office. Here we go. Uh, what is your hardware setup? So my hardware and office setup is focused on my Curl work. I develop software as my primary thing. I run two 27-inch screens attached to my desktop PC as my primary workhorse. I have some additional computers around when my desktop is not enough. I run Debian Linux on my machines when I get to choose but I have some other alternatives for when those are needed. I've been working from home exclusively for over nine years now. I do open source development and the occasional live stream and webinar from this place. I spend all my work days here and often a few additional spare time hours later. I never game. Oh, wow. Yeah, <laughs> let's keep it at that. My home office is on the upper floor of my house in the southern suburb of uh, Stockholm, Sweden. 
The desk is a 300 centimeter wide, 60 centimeter deep homemade creation designed to fit within the doors in the wall immediately next to the table on both sides. My original idea, or my original idea was to leave space to allow more than one person to work at it. So he has marked uh, in the picture um, each item with a number so we can reference to it. Uh, not going into each of those. So we have basically uh, the development machine, loudspeakers, <laughs> cable mess, nice, uh, some backpacks. Uh, many of these uh, things have descriptions or names, so you can Google them or even have direct links to those. Um, the extra computers, temporary screen and keyboard, LED lights, kit drawings with curl theme, excellent. And so extras explained a little more. And a mechanical keyboard using Cherry MX red switches. Ah, here we go. Well, it's good to uh, have a whole He office. averages <laughs> 8 million key presses per year. Wow, that's a lot, yeah, considering. Uh, the software setup he runs, he runs Debian Linux on most of his computers. On Linux, uh, he prefers using KDE slash Plasma on the desktop. On the desktop, he runs Emacs for coding and development. Seems like a theme here. I use console as terminal and use make, see compilers and GDB a lot. Old style development, I guess you would call it. I use Firefox for browsing. So far, so good. If it makes that curl thing happen, why not? What are your favorite programming and scripting languages? Most of my programming is done in C, not C++, if I have a say. The main projects I maintain are written in C, but when I need to hack something quick together or perhaps parse a lot of text, I like doing such things as uh, in Perl or even simpler in shell scripts. Okay. Is there anything you are missing in your setup? Uh, they thought about an HDMI keyboard switch to allow uh, more easily switching between the different spare computers, left uh, the backup screen to make it a less hassle to alter between those machines, but haven't had yet decided or found a product that would be suitable and need to do something about the cable mess. Yeah, no worries there. Uh, and what other, oh, what book comes to your mind when you, uh, what that you would like others to read? Uncurled by Daniel Stenberg. Nice plug here. Nice plug. So check that out if you like this. And the, if, you're other, if you're interested in other setups, then check out hackerstations.com for other people's setup and maybe get an idea how to rearrange your own one or submit your own if it's interesting to other people. Okay, but that's not all in the beastie bits. We have also VIO GPU, a short VIO GPU driver added to uh, OpenBSD's current. Yep. Uh, so Joshua Stein has committed VIO GPU, which provides uh, an interface for VertIO to simulate a GPU, which, for example, is provided by QMU and some other virtual machine engines. Uh, and they created a WS Cons console for it. Uh, so this is great stuff. It moves us closer to having a fully functional uh, WS Cons console on virtual machines uh, in those specific environments that use Vertio. Oh, yeah. Seems like OpenBST has done a lot in this area of virtualization recently. Oh, well, this is specifically for OpenBSD as a guest. Oh, right. Yeah, if you uh, be... Yeah, this isn't yeah. Vertio GPU support in VMD. This is just... If you're uh, a guest. The Vertio driver, mm. but still a big step. Mm. Okay, good. Uh, not a news. Yeah, and specifically works enough to get a console in QMU, and then there's more work to come from others. Mm -hmm. Okay, we'll report uh, when things happen there, as always. And um, 
staying with OpenBSD or Undeadly Org, we also have OpenBGPD 8.0 that has been released. Uh, there's the uh, Border Gateway Protocol daemon for those who don't know what the acronym means. And the announcement reads uh, Claudio Yaker. We have released OpenBGPD 8, which will bring, uh, which will be arriving in the OpenBGPD directory. That's kind of a tongue twister here uh, of your local OpenBSD mirror soon. So this release includes the following changes. Uh, they include OpenBSD 7.3 Errata 001, a new ASPA object appeared in the RPKI ecosystem and exposed bugs in BGPD and RPKI client. Okay. They also introduced a semaphore to protect intermittent RTR session data from being published to the RDE and add a first version of flow spec support. Right now, only announcement of flow spec rules is possible. Okay. That work was sponsored by Clara. Oh, congrats. Nice. Thanks for the support. Um, improve and extend the BGP CTL parser to handle commands like BGP CTL show rib and IP slash 24 detail. Also add various flow spec specific commands. So OpenBGPD Portable is known to compile and run on FreeBSD and the Linux distributions Alpine, Debian, Fedora, Red Hat, or CentOS, and Ubuntu. It is our hope that packagers take interest and help adopt OpenBGPD Portable to more distributions. We welcome feedback and improvements from the Portable community. Thanks to all the contributions or contributors who help make this release possible. Yeah, so the flow spec protocol is a way to provide information about specific flows, so basically a way to match specific flows, kind of like a firewall rule, uh, and allows you to push that rule upstream to your BGP provider. So allow you to say, we never expect to get any UDP traffic on port 80 and 443, and things like that, to basically push rules that say, if the incoming flow matches these rules, don't forward it to me. Ah, okay. uh, and it's basically a, a way of doing DDoS mitigation. Oh, good. That's good to have. And way up uh, the open BSD or uh, other alley being secure by default. Right. Well, yeah, this is OpenBGPD on FreeBSD uh, supports this as well and allows you to basically push firewall rules up to your ISP so that uh, an attacker can't overwhelm your pipe because they'd have to overwhelm the bigger pipe higher up the, the route. Mm. Very good feature to have and now available thanks to Clara and to people who developed it. Um, well, we still stay with uh, Undeadly Org. Uh, Cron now supports random ranges with steps. This is super useful. Mm -hmm. uh, doing something like this on FreeBSD, but having, you know, Ansible or Salter or Puppet pick random numbers for different Cron tabs and then using the step thing. Uh, but Cron being able to do it itself is actually quite nice. So basically, instead of uh, the old example, which is just 0 to 59 slash 10, which means do it every 10 minutes uh, in that time range, and you can adjust it slightly and so on. Uh, if you use the tilde instead of the dash for the range, it will pick uh, random times. So this will run a command every 10 minutes where the first command starts at a random offset in the range of 0 to 9. And the high and low numbers are optional. So if you just do tilde slash 10, it will just randomly pick some minute to do it and do it every 10 minutes after that oh good so for example to randomly download packages but port snap has a cron switch already or cron subcommand 
Right. Yeah. But yeah, FreeBSD update, for example, has the cron subcommand, which sleeps for a random time of up to an hour or whatever. But, uh, you know, having every tool have to learn that is annoying. Whereas if we just have a rule like this that says splay all of them over some range of time, you know, I just say, you know, do it once an hour or once a day or whatever at some random time in between these. Mm. Nice. Good to have in OpenBSD and maybe other systems sooner or later because it's all open and ready to get. Uh, more from OpenBSD is malloc leak detection available in OpenBSD current. And that is um, a new tool for developers working on OpenBSD to detect unsafe behaviors in their code. OpenBSD lets you more easily track memory allocations and whether allocations are properly freed after use. Right, you should always do that. Um, Otto Murbig, or Murbig uh, announced the new functionality. Uh, make sure you run current and have debug symbols on. Uh, to record the leak report, malloc options equals D, ktrace dash tu, A out. And to view the leak report, kdump dash u malloc. And he provides an example output to see what it looks like. The additional info, the null F values are due to the sampling nature of small allocations. Recording all call sites of all potential leaks introduces too much overhead. Note that aggressive optimizations might confuse the line numbers reported. And for static programs, compile with NoPy to make adder to line work. In some cases, we'll grant to use a packaged version of adder to line in the bin utils package as the base adder to line does not grok all debug info formats. Someone uh, in the comments said, it is like the OpenBSD developers read my mind. <laughs> and then lastly, we have VMD moves to a multi-process model. Oh. Uh, so Dave Rutilla uh, committed a change that brings multi-process model to VMD, enhancing both security and performance. Uh, so introduce the multi-process model for Vertio devices. So each Vertio network and block device emulation is dedicated is in its own dedicated process, forked and exact from the VM process. This allows for tightening of the pledge permissions of VMD itself to just standard I.O. Communication between the vCPUs and these devices now occurs via the iMessage channel, which adds the benefit of not always uh, blocking the vCPU thread while emulating the device. Uh, with this commit, it's possible that VMD is the first open source hypervisor that defaults to using a multi-process device emulation model without requiring any additional configuration from the operator. Uh, Test to help from Peter Hessler and Misha Peters. Ah, okay. All good news uh, from OpenBSD. And we'll sometimes we collect some of those and put them in here. Sometimes it's just a message here and there. So uh, we try to arrange them as, uh, as it makes sense to us. Sometimes they're a bit uh, spread out over the weeks, but well, it's reporting the news anyway. BSD Now is sponsored by Tarsnap. Everyone needs backups, and Tarsnap ensures that your backups are not only safe, but also secure. Your data is encrypted on your device before being sent to the cloud, so that only you have the ability to read your data. Tarsnap takes your data and works out what data is duplicated so that bandwidth can be saved. It then assembles your data into compressed blocks, encrypts them with your local private key that never leaves your system, and then uploads those encrypted blocks to the cloud. So even if someone is able to obtain your backed up data in the cloud, they will not be able to decrypt it and access your files. 
tarsnap is easy to use. If you can use tar, then you can use tarsnap. Tarsnap is prepaid, so you never have to worry about an unexpected bill. Tarsnap is fully open source, allowing you to inspect the code to make sure that it does what we say it does. Tarsnap also does bug bounties if you find errors in the code. With clients on all major platforms, there's no excuse to not have good backups. Go to tarsnap.com to learn more. So uh, this would be typically the spot for feedback and questions, but we kind of uh, ran out of them, but definitely send them to us since we're about to be around BSDCAN before, middle, or after. And uh, anything that you want to uh, let us know, have found maybe a cool blog post we haven't covered yet in 500 episodes and counting, uh, and we should cover, or something you want to let us know, then send it to feedback at bsdnow.tv, and then it has a good chance of appearing in a future episode. All right. Thanks, everyone. See you next week. <laughs>